opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Speaking Out for the Blind, I'm Brian McCallan. You may remember one of my previous guests, Peter Alchel. Peter is a writer that is blind and talked to us about his first book, titled Breaking Barriers. Peter also had some fun information about his teamwork with his guide dog, named Jules. Now Peter comes back to Speaking Out for the Blind to tell us about his very exciting and informative all-new book called Breaking It Down and Connecting the Dots. Welcome back to the show, Peter. Thank you for having me on again. Peter, before we talk about the new book... Tell our listeners about yourself. Well, I spent my adult years on the East Coast doing a number of things, doing customer service work, managing a couple of national projects, encouraging pro-life and pro-choice activists to dialogue and work together, doing a lot of work in the diversity and conflict in the workplace, and working with a number of organizations dealing with immigration reform. And then I moved out here to Columbia, Missouri about 10 years ago to get married, and I've spent the past 10 years doing some consulting work and writing and music and trying to learn how to be a good stepdad and wife. Your new book is called Breaking It Down and Connecting the Dots. I think it speaks out for the blind and visually impaired. It's a collection of essays answering two questions. One, how can we create common ground at home, on the job, and in faith communities? And two, how can we better work together to address those contentious culture war conflicts that divide us. In a nutshell, how does the book explore these two questions? The book is divided into nine sections. I guess the first thing I should say before I say that is each essay is under 750 words, so they're all very, very short and can be read in, you know, what, two or three minutes. And they're designed to get you to hopefully think about things in a slightly different way. The book is divided into nine sections. In the first section, it deals primarily with sort of how do you do with family conflicts and uh, a few other things. The second thing deals with workplace issues. And the third section deals a lot with uh, what is called intersectionality, which we may talk about later. And then there's some section on sports and music and Christianity and then some uh, having to do with politics. And then there's a whole section on the recent presidential election with, of President Trump being elected. So it's a very diverse array of topics, but a lot of the concepts sort of cycle through in different ways. Part one of the book covers essays on the subject of influencing. One of the entries titled Kicked by a Camel, Kissed by Two Dolphins, tells about you and your wife Lisa riding dolphins and camels while being accompanied by guides in Jamaica. How did you achieve common ground with the tour guides and have a good vacation? And what about these camel and dolphin experiences? The camel actually kicked me, which is hardly riding the camel. He wasn't very happy with me brushing his, his back while Lisa, my wife, was trying to take a picture. I wasn't hurt. It was sort of startling, and the, and the guide wasn't very happy with the camel. So that wasn't especially successful. But the dolphins was unbelievably successful. The reason it was, it was especially successful is that the person in charge of working with the dolphins and us humans was really good at being flexible and didn't get freaked out about my blindness. What really struck me about the experience was that many of us encouraged sensitivity training and just ADA training 
And this guy did a really good job without having any of that. And I think what made it work from his perspective is he had worked with all kinds of different people, tourists with different backgrounds, different experiences and different fears and different hopes, and also obviously knew how to work with dolphins. And so that sort of diverse background made it easy for him that when this weird blind guy showed up, we could work things out without trying very hard. And it was just one of those powerful experiences that got me to realize that we don't need necessarily to over to do drastic training of everybody to work with us blind people. We need to find people who are culturally aware who can sort of make that adjustment on their own without, without trying very hard. It was one of those things, and I think all of us who are blind have experienced that probably in one way or another. But for me, it was a unique experience having to deal with these amazing creatures. Dolphins are incredible. That guide was really, really good at sort of making things work, not just with me and Lisa, but with the other folks who were part of the crowd. You know, the camel kicked me, and we did get the picture of the camel. Uh, <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, I sort of instinctually, I felt the camel move and sort of jumped out of the way. So I was only grazed, but it was sort of unnerving, to say the least. But these things happen. The guys' willingness to work with and listen to a totally blind man helped make the trip enjoyable. Part two of the book covers workplace behavior. An entry called Diversity's Bottom Line looks at enhancing diversity and creativity in the workplace. How can we speak out or act so that creativity and diversity are enhanced at work? I have spent many years doing a lot of diversity training and, and consulting with organizations on diversity, not primarily disability, but dealing with other groups. And one of the things that I find disturbing in the whole diversity arena is that diversity at bottom is how can we address conflicts more effectively? You know, with all the differences and that exist, and of course the similarity as well between people in the workplace, what causes trouble are all the sort of the frictions that take place, the many things, aggressions or many things that happen. And that also do with conflict. How can we help people work together more effectively, address those many conflicts so that they don't become worse and in fact can be productive? My concern is that a lot of the diversity work does everything they can to ignore conflict. Pretend it doesn't exist. So as a result, people are trained to sort of pretend these differences don't exist. And I think that's very unhelpful to everybody, everybody in, in the workplace involved with this stuff. I've spent a good deal of time working with organizations to sort of help them see the connection between diversity and conflict and helping them figure out ways to use that those conflict resolution skills to deal with diversity. And creativity is the same thing. Your creativity is a whole has to do with conflict as well. What are the boundaries we're working in creativity? How can we use those to be more creative? What to leave in? What to throw out? And all that involves conflict. And if you're working with teams, they have to be available, have to be willing and able to deal with those conflicts that emerge and, and get pretty good at it. And those teams that are pretty good at it do really, really well. Part three covers intersectionality. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality is one of these academic terms that essentially says that all of us belong to more than one group. So, for example, I am a totally blind guy, but I'm also male. I'm also white. I'm also now over 55. There are all a few other things as well. And what intersectionality suggests is that in order to really make sense of these differences, you sort of figure out the intersections between these various things about us and how do they how do they work together to influence the way we behave and work with others. That's what intersectionality in a nutshell is. And that whole section 
deals with the intersectionality in a number of different ways. For example, I don't know if any of you remember in Indiana, there was a whole thing about whether how religion should factor into private life and how, how do we create a balance between those who are being served and those people of religious beliefs that don't necessarily believe some of the beliefs of some of the folks who are involved, like the gay and lesbian community. There are lots of conservative Christians who just don't believe that that's a, a appropriate way to run your life. I talk about that, and then I say, well, okay, if this Indiana law were to go into effect, how would it impact us blind folks who are trying to get taxis, who often sometimes are driven by Muslims, some of whom don't think that dogs are clean? If you're going to allow conservative Christians to not serve gay people, then why shouldn't Muslim cab drivers serve people who use guide dogs if they have sincere religious beliefs? And it's those kinds of connections that I think are really important for us as we sort of try to think through these issues. I mean, it's not just one group that's going to be impacted by these things. It's going to be other groups that are going to be unintended consequences. So we better be think pretty carefully before we put our prejudices into law. In one of your entries called Pioneering Perils, you and your wife had breakfast with incorrigible progressive disability activist, university administrator, scholar, and author Stephen Cusisto. What did you all talk about, and what are the pioneering perils? We were talking about a certain individual with it. We took a lot of things, starting with a very high-profile disability activist who treated me not very well. And so we were sort of talking about that. And sort of during the conversation, it occurred to me, I, I, I remembered I used to train New York City taxi drivers in customer service. And one of the things the cab drivers talked about was this idea of being sharp. They have to be sharp doing the work they do. They need to be, be cautious about some of the passengers they pick up. They need to figure out how to deal with police who don't like them. There are all kinds of things they need to be able to do to be successful in driving a taxi in New York City. The traffic patterns, they have, they have to be alert. They have to be sharp. They have to be very smart about how they deal with their environment. The problem becomes that sharpness sometimes can intimidate passengers. They would like, ideally, to have a friendly cab driver. And sometimes these cab drivers aren't as friendly as passengers would like them to be and they get fewer tips as a result. One of the grizzly cab drivers said, grizzled cab drivers said to me in the back of the room, we need to find that balance between being sharp and being friendly. And that's not always easy to do. And I thought, you know, that's sort of the way I think many of us from diverse backgrounds, we have to be street smart, you know, in order to be successful and be able to communicate across those boundaries. And that sometimes can, can harden us a little bit in ways that make us harder for others to approach us. It was that peril that I was sort of talking about in that, especially in that blog post. Part four is called On the Couch. In one of the pieces titled The Football Player, you talk about being paired with your new guide dog, Heath, who had the skills of a football running back. What football running back qualities did Heath have, and how did you work through these to become a team? I should say that that title On the Couch has to do with my connection with sports as a fan and also uh, with movies, I think that story makes more sense if you if I mention that what that section is about. And one of the sections has to do with my guide dog, as you mentioned, who the trainer called the football player. And I don't know why specifically, but he uh, to use scouting lingo, he was compact, he was fast, he was agile, he was to use their word agile. Scouts never use the word agile; they use agile. And then when he when and he, you know, so we be, we. We came to team at the school and came home, and we did very well as a team. The problem was he w- we had two standard poodles in the house who were very mischievous, and he had that tendency as well. 
So the, the end result was they were constantly stealing things off the food off the counter, and he became too fat, or as they say, his body mass index body mass index got too uh, uh, out of control, so he could no longer play football. But he's been in a diet; it's doing really, really well uh, as a guide dog. He's been really uh, terrific. So I'm very pleased with the matchup. But the football player, he still has that football sort of thing in in him. So it's been been fun to work with him. As I got to know him more. You know, you'd throw a ball for him and he would catch it, but then he'd run in the wrong direction or he would, you know, get so excited he'd drop it. And that doesn't really work well. So, you know, if you're going to be a football player, you've got to be able to hold on to the ball. You know, fumble, fumble lattice is a real problem for football players. So he didn't quite make, make the cut. Heath could fumble the ball, dash across the field, and pass and catch. That sounds like a handful. Part 5 of the book covers rhetorical rabbit holes. One of the essays in Part 5 tells... Two controversy tales. What are these tales and how they help readers understand that having a more relaxed vibe, attentive listening, and shared stories can allow them to unwind the controversies in their lives more effectively? Well, one of the things we blind folks have is often we need to be driven from place to place because we can't drive. And one of these folks who drove me to choir rehearsals on a regular basis, we became friends. And we had two conversations one had to do with uh, the University of Missouri had a major conflict around issues of diversity, which got resolved in a very controversial way. And we got into a heated conversation about that situation. And it didn't end well. It's not that we didn't remain friends, but we didn't really address it especially well. And then, I don't know, about three or, I can't remember how long, two or three months later, I uh, we were driving back from my job interview that I had been on. And she started sort of talking about her experiences as a landlord working with people with low incomes. And she was talking about how frustrating it was for a variety of reasons. And I sort of talked to her about my perspective on the on the issue, which is a little different from hers. We spent, I don't know, 15 minutes in my driveway sort of talking about this and trying to make sense of it. And we ended the, relation, the conversation in a much better space than we started. And as I write in the book, we didn't. I don't think we agreed on anything. We still disagreed on a number of issues, but we had a much clearer sense of where the differences were. And, you know, maybe down the road, we could have continued the conversation if we'd chosen to. It really talked about the value of listening, as you mentioned, but also the value of sharing stories, because stories have a way of of connecting not only with our thoughts, but our feelings. And as I say in the book several times, feelings, not thoughts, drive action. Very good advice. Part six focuses on music. Tell us about some of the essays that you write in the music section. Well, music's been a really important part of my life, and especially I've sort of reconnected with it in in Columbia. And so I write several pieces about my early experiences with music. I write a couple of essays about sort of choir culture, how people coming into choir culture can be totally confused. So I write a little about that. I got a commission to write two pieces for a concert. And I worked with elementary school poets and set their poems to music and how that worked. I wrote about The Grateful Dead had its final shows in Chicago several years ago. My wife and I went to all three shows, and that was an adventure, especially for someone like me who had never been too heavily involved in the rock concert scene. Although I'm a huge rock fan, I just didn't do a lot of concerts. It was a great experience. And then I write about how music uh, enhanced my wife's and I anniversary celebration. So there's a lot of sort of nice stuff about music and and life and leadership and all kinds of stuff. Part 7 covers subjects related to the topic of culture war. An essay called Invasion of the Red Herring discusses global warming. 
What do you talk about in terms of global warming in this piece? And what's the message to your readers? There are lots to say about global warming, but there are two sort of issues involved. The first one is, does global warming or climate change exist? And for the most part, most people agree that some kind of climate change is taking place. They may disagree about how much and how fast, but we, we agree that there's climate change taking place. That's the first issue. The second issue is, to what degree are we humans responsible for that change? Are, are, to, what ex- to what extent are our actions making this, assist, making this worse? And there's a lot of disagreement about that. The majority think that we are involved, but there are some people who don't. And my point is, that second question, we're all sort of yelling at each other at the second question, but there is a lot of common ground on the first question. If climate change really is an issue, then we probably there are things we could be doing now begin to address it without having to, without fighting about the extent to which we are causing the problem. We as, as humans are causing the problem. And it seems to me that second issue is making it much harder for us to work on the first issue. Okay. Well, we're covering politics. Part 8 talks about POTUS politics. One of the essays is titled Dog Days. It's a very funny one, I think. Tell us about this essay and its message. Dog Days, Keith, my guide dog, comes into the picture. It's a satire. And it's satirizing the whole conventions, primarily, the, the Republican and Democratic convention, and how really silly they seem to me, the whole process. I make up the service dogs of America, and there's the Labrador Party, and there's the Poodle Party. And I write about their conventions and their candidates, how Heath, and who is the guide dog, and Hunter, who's Andrew Poodler in our house, sort of makes snarky comments about the service dog convention that they're watching on doggy TV. The candidates becomes in the piece, I write, the candidates were so obnoxious that they elected a third-party candidate, and everybody seemed a whole lot happier as a result. There's another doggy one in there called the um, Shaggy Dog Partnership, and that talks about, um, you know, uh, their their take on their candidates, which they talk a little more in depth about, but then they talk about the value of telling stories. But the basic point was, I wrote it when, when, uh, President Trump had won the election, and people simply were not talking to each other. From uh, you know, the, the Clinton supporters and the Trump supporters were, were yelling at each other, but they weren't really talking with each other. And I said, I, I sort of talked about the value of telling stories, about why they came to believe what they believe, and what often happens with these stories. And, and uh, in my experience, is people sort of see that there is some humanity on the other side, and they actually agree on certain things. And the stories are a very powerful way to, to, to build those bridges. The final portion of the book, Part 9, gets into Christians and Christianity. Tell us about the essay Drive by Evangelism and how it speaks out. Many of many people with disabilities, if you put us together in a room, blind folks especially, uh, will talk about how they've been waylaid on, on streets by well-meaning people who try to tell us that... Uh, you know, a number of things that, you know, that we're blind because we have a lack of faith or we're, we're, we're not saved and so we're blind. And it's just all kinds of sort of destructive stuff that, that irritates a lot of us. And so I wrote about an experience that happened to me relatively recently here in Colombia. And I was thinking about it, uh, the experience, and it, it occurred to me that this is, we're not the only people who experience this, this, uh, irritation. Uh, for example, there are folks who, try to get abortions and, and walk into clinics and people yell at them that they're whores, they're going to hell and they're murdering their baby. And, you know, that's not, if, if you're going to reach out to folks who are going to get an abortion, 
yelling things at them is not going to accomplish anything. And this um, was going on a lot in the late 90s, and I think it's still going on to a lesser extent on outside of abortion clinics. And then I, t- I, I talk about uh, a dialogue that I led uh, in a federal agency between uh, Christians and gay people. They were part of the same work team. They were having all kinds of trouble working together. And part of the reason was that the Christian folks were sending the gay folks Bible passages. And uh, the gay folks were saying things like, hey, guys, we find this, we don't like this stuff. Please stop doing it. And the Christian folks were saying, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's only Bible verses. What's the problem? And so I, you know, I let them have a conversation. There was actually a really interesting conversation they were having. And at the end, I said to the Christian folks, hey, look, you know, you, you're getting, you know, I understand what you're trying to accomplish, but you're being told clearly that what you're doing isn't working. You know, why don't you try something else? And I said to the gay folks, you know, hey, gay guys, you know, gay folks, um, you know, why don't you just delete the message and go on? You know, it's not as if... Uh, it needs to be a huge thing. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the, we Christians, you know, are so hip to want to convey the good news that we really insult people we're trying to convey the message to. And we need to be more thoughtful and soulful about doing that. Excellent. What have readers said about your story? I've heard it's gotten some great reviews. I've gotten lots of really nice comments, um, several from the organization development, you know, folks who help organizations get better. Um, talked about how um, the essays had helped them think about things in different ways. I got a nice comment from somebody who has done a lot of work on Common Ground who said, you know, that um, this book, you know, really helps people, challenge people to think, to, to talk and think in different ways. Um, got a nice comment from the uh, uh, one of the major music leaders in Columbia about how this book, you know, it made it clear how my music background connects with the work I do now. Um, you know, some really nice comments. Some other people talked about how these stories were sort of O. Henry-ish. You know, o. Henry sort of has these sort of trick endings in some of his stories. And there are some of that in my, my stories as well. And then another person said that, that these are the kind of essays that get better if you read them more than once. You know, that, that they're short. But if you read them again, you'll get more out of them. So I was really pleased with the comments I got. You'll get the main ideas. So where can our listeners buy the book, and how much does it cost? You can buy the book uh, through my website, which is www.peteraltschul.com. You can get the book there either through my publisher, iUniverse, or through Amazon. You can get the, the print copy. I think it's thirteen ninety five. The um, ebook version, I think, is three ninety five. You can get Kindle version. You can get an um, EPUB version. You can get an ePDF version. Um, so that's those are the versions, and I encourage uh, listeners to read the book. But I also encourage them to pass it on to their to their uh, non disabled uh, friends and family. I think it's a, a real relevant, not just to the disability community, but disability community, but also to uh, you know, the non-disability community as well. It's a must-read for everyone. Peter, we hope that our listeners will read your new book, be inspired to speak out and act, and achieve common ground between themselves and others. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Before we go, I welcome your comments on this program. Just visit and like me on Facebook at Speaking Out for the Blind, or follow me on Twitter at Speak Out Blind or Speak Out for the Blind. 
You can always check out my website. That's speakingoutfortheblind.weebly.com. More information on today's show is posted there. Just look under the list of episodes and show news tab. My new email address is speakout at acbradio.org, and my show archive is at acbradio.org slash speaking dash out dash four dash the dash blind. Please note that there is a link located at the top half of the page and below the heading that says Home Speaking Out for the Blind, where you can subscribe to the podcast feed and listen to Speaking Out for the Blind shows ranging from episode 94 to the present. That's all for this edition of Speaking Out for the Blind. Thanks for listening, and remember to speak out. Here at ACB Radio Mainstream, we are always working to improve the quality of our programming. If you have any feedback about anything you have heard here on ACB Radio Mainstream, please let us know by sending an email to support at acbradio.org. That's support at acbradio.org. You are listening to ACB Radio Mainstream, connecting the blind community. Thursday night at 9 p.m. on ACB Radio Interactive, it's Global Beat with Ann Sylvia. I know you're never going to believe this, but before I started listening, I was kind of a pathetic sad sack. The thing you really learn from Ann's show is the pronunciation of a lot of international words. Switch, switch, squish. We're going to switch, switch gears right now, but before that. So, as Ann always likes to say. Yeah, that came out at 63. If you enjoy spending an evening listening to a wide variety of music, including classic jazz, salsa, reggae, Hawaiian, Brazilian jazz, plus much, much more, tune into Global Beat every Thursday from 9 to midnight Eastern, 6 to 9 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget to catch Global Beat on demand at www.acbradio.org slash Global Beat. So, if you're kind of a pathetic sad sack, maybe you should be listening. That's every Thursday night from 9 to midnight Eastern on ACB Radio Interactive. The American Council of the Blind has established the Legacy Society to honor and recognize individuals who have communicated their intentions to include ACB in their estate plans via a bequest or another type of planned gift. We want to acknowledge individuals for including ACB in their will while they are still living so that we can thank them for their commitment to perpetuating ACB's good work for years to come. Says ACB President Kim Charlson, more information about the Legacy Society and how you can help is available from Tom Tobin, Director of Development at ttobin, T-T-O-B-I-N, at acb.org, or by phone at 800-424-8666, option 5. Thank you for listening to ACB Radio and for considering ACB's future financial needs. You're listening to acbradio.org. Connecting the blind community around the world. ACB Radio.